While you're still standing, would you grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We'll remain standing and read this great psalm together. And I'll pray and then have you be seated. It's David who writes in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we believe that this is your word to us, and you have spoken. We pray that you would speak afresh this morning. We pray, that, Lord, you would apply this, this passage to each individual here in a special way. For unbelievers who are skeptical about what this says or mystified perhaps, we pray you'd bring clarity. We pray you'd bring conviction. We pray you'd give faith and salvation. For Christians here this morning, Lord, we pray your word would be clear and powerful by your spirit speaking. Again, we say, speak afresh, Lord, in your word. Let this not be an English translation of words thousands of years old, but let us hear this as your words for us today. We need to see you afresh as our refuge. We need afresh to kiss the sun. We need afresh to see the ugliness of sin, the brokenness of this world, to see what you have saved us from and what kind of hope we have for the future, both tomorrow and into eternity. So we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you specifically for this psalm. And we pray, Lord, you would teach us in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. You can be seated. Well, as Drew said earlier, we're in a series in this book, in the middle of our Bible here, the book of Psalms. We're calling it Pour Out Your Heart to Him. That's based on Psalm 62, a reference there, a verse there says that phrase, pour out your heart to Him. And so many parts of the Psalms are reflected in that phrase, pouring out your heart to him. Whether it's in praise to him, you, you pour out your heart to him. Whether it's in complaint, 
like Psalm 13 we sung earlier. You pour out your heart to him. Now, some psalms aren't exactly fitting for that title. This is sort of one of those. Some psalms, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, are instruction psalms. They're not so much experiential or praise or prayer. They give instruction. Psalm 1 was one of those. We saw that last week. And Psalm 2 is one of those. And yet, like we also said a couple weeks ago when we introduced this, and I tried to give an invitation to the psalms, give an overview of the psalms. We talk about different kinds of psalms. And I said then, there are different kinds of psalms, but some psalms are not just one kind. And Psalm 2 is one of those. It's an instruction psalm. tells us what to do. tells us how to think. tells us how to live in light of what God has said. But it's also what we call a regal psalm or a kingly psalm. It's talking about God's reign, his rule. So like Psalm 1... Psalm 2 is also something of an intro to the whole book of Psalms. Last week I said Psalm 1 really functions like an intro or a gateway into the rest of the world of the Psalms. What I didn't say on purpose is that really Psalm 1 and 2, most scholars believe, are an introduction to the Psalms. They're something of that gateway into the rest of these songs of praise and lament and instruction. So last week we saw Psalm 1, and we could say Psalm 1 unpacks godliness. And remember, at the center of godliness in Psalm 1 is the Word, God's revelation of Himself and who He says. We're to delight in it, we're to meditate upon it, and that ultimately, through salvation in Christ and communion with Him, leads to a blessed life or a happy life. Psalm 1 unpacks godliness. We could say this, Psalm 2 unpacks ungodliness. And as it unpacks ungodliness, it gets to the heart of sin. It gets to the heart of the problem. And as it does that, it puts it right alongside God's reign, his rule in this world, and his plan to execute that reign and rule in this world. The psalm really has four sections or four themes to it. The first is this. You can follow along on the sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin there. The first is this. Things are worse than they seem, according to Psalm 2. How are they worse? The nations rage. Things are worse than they seem. Verses 1 through 3 specifically tell us something about the problem. And I mean the capital P problem. The universal problem, the diagnosis of Psalm 2 is worse than it seems at first glance. Worse than it seems to our at least fallen, human, naked eyes before we're given new eyes in Christ. The problem, according to Psalm 2, is not a lack of education. So that if we just had the right education, or more of it, or more money to fund it, then we would somehow eventually reach a utopia. No, not according to Psalm 2. It's not a problem of low self-esteem. It's not a problem of the economy. So bumper stickers today say, it's about the economy, stupid. Psalm 2 would say, no, it's not stupid. It's about sin. 
You see, whether it's the economy caused by either mismanagement of big government or mismanagement of big business, Republican, Democrat, whatever side of the fence you fall on there, the economy is not really the problem. It's a product of the problem. A wrong view of self isn't really the problem. It's a product of the problem. Broken education, weird culture, broken relationships even. Those aren't the problems. These are the results of the problem. The problem is sin. And even worse than just saying that sin is the problem, verses 1 through 3 put it, well, more bluntly, more descriptively. Look at verse 1. It says the nations are raging. You see that? Raging. It says the people are plotting in vain. It says rulers and kings are getting together and conspiring against the Lord. That's what's going on beneath the surface here. And so it begins with a question. This is all put with a rhetorical question. Why? Why are the nations like this? Why are people like this? It's meant to convey outrage, unbelief. That the nations are against their God, their creator, and their sustainer, and their provider, and their protector. They're conspiring against him to throw him off. It doesn't make any sense, David would say. They rage. Now this Hebrew word for rage is a word often used in reference to a roaring sea. Think of foaming white waves at the edge of an ocean. Rage sounds like it's just about anger, but really the word has something, well, not so specific in mind, like waves that are just churning, turning, constantly moving. That's really the issue here, that people, kings and paupers, are restless. We're all restless, like the water. Like the ocean, it's constantly moving, it's constantly changing. Even when the ocean looks still on the surface, or even when a mighty river looks still on the surface, below there are major currents moving things, changing things. That's us. We often think of change as a a good thing. We're a culture that likes new things. New is usually better. iPhone 5 will come out. It'll probably do some things that iPhone 4 didn't do. And we'll all have to have one if we can afford it. And if we think it's wise to spend that much. But thinking through how things develop and why people, why people improve things, why people innovate, why they create. You see, it's not just an evolution of society that's at root there. Certainly not all innova- innovation is bad. I'm not saying that. I enjoy technology or new things, okay? They help us sometimes. They can even help us to God's glory. But but shouldn't we also note that we're a, a people who are restless and we love change partly because we're restless. We want the new. We want the better. We want the different. We want to live someplace else. We want to have a new job. Not because we actually think the grass will be greener on the other side or there won't be problems with this new device, but because 
We are just restless people. And change is not just proof of our intelligence and our cultural advancement. It's also proof of something broken in our want box called our hearts. So our restlessness is fleshed out in a variety of ways. Rage is one of them. That's why it's translated rage in the ESV and some other translations. But, but the restlessness, the Hebrew word here can mean a lot of different things. It can be fleshed out as depression. It can be fleshed out as frustration. It can be anger and fighting at an interpersonal level. So broken relationships are part of what verse 1 is talking about. And it can also be conflict on a grand scale like wars. It's all plotting. Plotting in vain, it says at the end of verse 1. There's personal plotting. We're all trying to plot a better path for ourselves, right? We're all trying to plot peace. We're all trying to plot blessedness. Remember that word from last week? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delights in the law of the Lord. We said, blessed doesn't mean a halo behind your head. Blessed means happy and fulfilled and satisfied. We all want that. We're all plotting to get it. But this says that we're actually plotting against the Lord. You see, we're plotting for satisfaction. We're plotting for some kind of utopia, whether that's personal plotting or more corporate plotting, national plotting, the plotting of nations. It's futile. World War I was supposed to be the war to what? And all wars. How'd that go? Was it? No. A few decades later, we have World War II, and there's... More bloodshed. We as a country, the U.S., had wars with Korea and Cambodia, Vietnam for a decade, a shorter standoff with Cuba for a bit because of a longer tension with Russia. We, you know, we don't know of any major lives lost in this war, this cold war with Russia, but nevertheless, it's called a cold war. It's tension. It's Two countries butting heads. It's a war of a kind. Then there's Iraq. There's Bosnia. Afghanistan. And who knows what's next? The war to end all wars. Give me a break. And that's just reviewing our history since World War I as a country. But we could think of so many other countries who've been battling each other perhaps through that whole time, or perhaps with a dozen nations throughout that time. My point is this, for all of our innovation and sophistication, for all of our pooling of resources nationally and globally, for this society in which we're all growing as specialists, right? none of us mostly are Most of the people here aren't generalists. We're specialists. You do this thing. You're supposed to become an expert at your job, at this thing. And that's part of advancement. It's part of culture. It's part of society getting better. We have experts here and experts there. I'm all for it. And yet, we have to note, for all this so-called advancement, we're still as frustrated as ever. We're still as depressed as ever. We're still as sleepless as ever. We're still as angry as ever. We are not, as Emile Covey said, in every day, in every way, getting better and better. 
We're not. And we're not because we are plotting against the Lord. You see, it's worse than it seems. All of our plotting seems innocent. It seems amoral. And yet, there's something deeper at root. It's a a rebellion where we're trying to find other things to replace God. Sometimes we replace the satisfaction that we should have in God with satisfaction in other things. And sometimes we replace the lawmaking of God with the lawmaking of self. Now, you might say, is this really against the Lord, like verse 2 says? I mean, maybe we're restless, okay. So maybe we're, we're not really improving culturally, societally, emotionally, spiritually even. But is this really against the Lord, all this plotting? Well, let me clarify. I think we actually do want a king. I think we like the concept of a king in many ways. We have many great legend stories, right? Not just here in the U.S., but all over the world. We have stories of a a great king who goes away for a time, things fall apart, he comes back, kicks butt, and fixes things. That's Lord of the Rings, abridged version. (laughs) You don't need to watch it now. That's Narnia. That's... um, Something like where the wild things are. Maybe you grew up reading that book as a kid. And then you went and watched the film and thought, boy, this is darker than I remember in the book. Why? I think rightly so in some ways. Because you have these beasts who are trying to make a second grader their king. They're desperate for a king. They feel safe with a king. Remember Peter Pan? Remember that both Peter and the pirates want their freedom and they want a mom. How ironic. Pirates who need their mom. And we're all like that. We're all rebellious teenagers that want to move out and yet want protection. We're all nasty pirates that still need their mommies. Really what we need is a king. You see, behind all great king stories, there's one great king. There's a reason we keep writing similar stories. It's in us. Oh, in the democratic West, here in the U.S., I don't think it's literally kings that we love. In fact, we built a whole country of being against a king. But we have our kings. Celebrities are a kind of king in our culture, aren't they? We all want a kind of king, even if we don't call him king. We all want to pursue a a king and follow a king and honor a king. We all want to awe someone. We all want protection. We all want a savior. We all want a Messiah, religious or not. We all have our man. Maybe in politics you have your man, one of the 25 Republican candidates, perhaps. Maybe you'll still have Barack Obama as your man four years into it. That's not likely. Most people pick a president for two years and then want something else. My point is this. 
We want a king. We just don't want this king. We don't want a king that's this holy. We don't want a king that's this fierce. We don't want a king that's this different. We don't want a king that we can't see. We don't want a king that's mysterious and we can't get, at least not in all the ways we'd like to. We don't want a king that's so glorious that people see him and die. We don't want a king who's killed people immediately for their rebellion. And let me also say, we don't want a king who's this merciful and this sacrificial. I mean, have you ever been given something that's awkward? It's too much. It's too big. I mean, what if a, a millionaire, he's worth $20 million, and he says, I want to give you $20 million. You'd be thinking, what's that mean for you? Are you going to live in a cardboard box while I get your $20 million? <laughs> Let's just split it, okay? I don't want that kind of pressure. I don't want a, that kind of guilt. I... We don't like gifts that are too big. I know you're thinking, go ahead and try me. Okay, I'll try you. King is sacrificed for you. Dies a criminal death upon a cross. We get nervous with that kind of gift and that kind of sacrifice and that kind of, I was going to say undying love, but instead it should be dying love. You see, there's a pull and a push. There's a hint of truth that's still within us. It's undeniable, even if we're trying to suppress that truth. That's what Romans 1.18 says, that in unrighteousness, before Christ, without Christ, all of us are born this way. We're denying the truth that we know. We're denying that he's there. We're denying that he said, just like the serpent began his speech to Eve in the garden. Has God really said? And yet, because this is a fallen, broken world, even though there's a hint of truth, that we want a king, that we need protection, that we want to be told what to do sometimes. We don't want this king, and we don't want his rules. So, look at verse 3. The goal of all this is throwing off bonds. Throwing off the cords. It's like his law, what he said. We should be, what we should do, are described in terms of bondage. That's the way sinful people always see God's law, bondage. It's all about what you can't do. And so, an unregenerate heart, a heart that's not made new yet, wants to throw off these fetters, wants to cut the cords. Romans 8 tells us this, tells us that this is normal for those who are outside of Christ. We're born this way. The mind set on the flesh that is, on sin, is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It can't do so. Remember, Jesus preached with authority. It was unique about him. It's talked about several times in the gospel accounts. He preached with, as one with authority. You know what? And at first they thought that was kind of neat, or at least curious, but eventually... They hated him and killed him for it. 
So let's answer that question, the beginning of Psalm 2. Why? Why do the nations rage? Simply this. Satan has led humanity in a rebellion against its maker and its sustainer, the only true God. We've all followed it. We express it in different ways. But like the currents below the surface of a still sea, there's much fomenting, much movement. There's much restlessness. And sometimes there's even rage. Things are worse than they seem. Secondly, things are more sure than they seem. Psalm 2 says things are more sure than they seem. God reigns, verses 4 and 5 tell us. You see, despite the truth that things are worse than they seem to our fallen, human, naked eyes, things are also more sure than they seem when we're given new eyes. Despite all the rage and everything said there in verses 1 and 2 and 3, the plotting, the whole earth setting itself against the Lord, rulers conspiring how to throw off God's good restraints, despite all that God is not threatened in the least. A whole humanity is against him. Angels too. And he's not threatened in the least. In fact, he laughs. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs at our pathetic attempts to resist his lordship and to pretend that he isn't there. Or that he hasn't said. Christians sometimes say that God has a sense of humor. Here's a passage that shows that he does have a sense of humor. Maybe not the kind you were thinking though, right? I mean, all the passages that talk about God laughing are actually him mocking. Him laughing and scoffing at persistent unrebellion. Persistent rebellion and unbelief. Now, if you say to me, I, you know, this happened, it's ironic. God has a sense of humor. I promise not to rebuke you. I know what you mean, but isn't it funny, pun intended, that we often say God has a sense of humor in the passages that talk about him laughing or him mocking sin and rebellion. He can laugh because our attempts are futile. Verse 1 said these are vain things. They're plotting in vain. It doesn't get anywhere, at least apart from his will. So he can laugh and he's not threatened because he's sovereign. Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't get a lot of things right, but he got it right when he said this in verse 34 of Daniel 4. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures forever. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as special. Oh, wait, it didn't say that. As nothing. He does according to his will in some places, like churches. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. It says he does according to his will in heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. No one can hold back his hand unless they fast really long. No one can say to him, 
what have you done? He's not accountable to you. He's not accountable to me. He doesn't owe you an explanation for what's going on right now. His ways are mysterious. He's sovereign. That doesn't mean that he does evil or he creates evil, but mysteriously, neither does it mean that he's on plan B or plan C or plan X, X, Y, Z, whatever the number would be at this stage with all of our mess-ups. He uses the mess-ups. He's in it all. He uses the rage of the kings for his purposes. So Proverbs 21 says the king's heart It's like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He can put a king's heart in his hand and say, I want you to do this. Or allow his evil heart to do as much evil as the Lord would allow. So kings are no threat to him. Not even great kings. Not even when great kings get together, they conspire against him and his plan or his people. He is not threatened in the least. He says in Isaiah 40, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust, and all the nations are nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. All the nations yours included. Now, there's something else to say at this point. The Bible talks about God's nearness, his care, that every human being is in some ways special. They're made in his image. He listens to us. He works on our behalf. He does great things for us. So if you only understood Isaiah 40 to to say he's aloof, he doesn't care, he's someplace else, he's dealing with, you know, cockroaches on Mars or something, he's playing over there on that side of the universe, and you're alone. No, no, he's not saying that. But you already know that, don't you? You already know that you can pray and he hears, you already know that he cares, you already knows, you already know that He listens and he does great things. What we also need to remember is what Isaiah 40 says. Nations, big nations, powerful nations, the best of nations are just a drop in the bucket of his plan. And he owes none of them anything he does according to his will. And things are more sure than any nation... Things are more sure in God because he's the final judge. There will be a reckoning, verse 5 tells us. He will speak to them in his wrath. He'll terrify them in his fury. Notice he speaks to them as he sits. Verse 4 says he sits. Sure, it's a picture of a king, right, sitting on his throne. How many of you ever said to your kids, don't make me get up? Apparently this... Father, this king, doesn't need to get up, right? A dad who can't get up, well, he's not so scary. I remember as a kid, I was probably two years old or so, my dad was in a cast for about a year, and he couldn't catch me. I knew it. (laughs) He'd limp around and get back here, and 
He couldn't get up in a sense. Our God doesn't need to get up. He sits and he speaks. And it's so. He speaks in fury, verse 5 says. He speaks and the speech itself is terrifying. What we see in Revelation is that when Jesus comes back, it's described in Revelation 19 as him coming with a sword out of his mouth. It doesn't really mean that he'll come with a sword out of his mouth. He's not, he's not some sort of circus trick guy with sword swallowing techniques. He's, no, it's a word picture, right? It's symbolism. It means when he comes back, his weapon is his tongue. He just says it. The God who spoke these worlds into existence with just the word of his mouth, will also speak destruction with just the word of his mouth when he returns. Things are more sure than they seem, though the waters seem to foment below the surface, though in some ways it's worse than we could have imagined. Things are more sure than we ever could have hoped because God is in charge. Third, we see in Psalm 2 that his plan is more centralized than we might think. What I mean by centralized is that it rests on his son. Verses 6 through 9. You see, the problem's worse than we think. The hope for the problem, the fix, is better than we think. But the hope isn't just what verses 4 and 5, if you look down and see those, the hope isn't just what they say that, you know, all the... Rage and plotting is futile, that he's sovereign, that he's the final judge. But verses 6 and 7 tell us that God's victory and his sovereignty and his judgment are all centralized in his son. Verse 6, as for me, God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, that's David speaking, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, who's the son? Maybe at first glance you just assume that this is Jesus. Jesus is the son. Jesus is the king. But remember I said, verse 7 is first person. This is written by David. David is saying, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Who's the son? Well, this is a little complicated, but it's pretty typical of the Bible, so you kind of need to know this. Things about Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament oftentimes are multi-layered. So we have these things called Messianic Psalms, and Psalm 2 is one of those. They talk about the one who's to come. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, because of the time we live and the Bible we have, it's Jesus. But these messianic psalms and other passages in the Old Testament are like bifocals. They look near and they look far. Here's how they look near, at least here's how Psalm 2 looks near. Psalm 2 is written in its own historical context by David. It's written with a purpose for that historical context. It's not just talking about a thousand plus years from when David was living. You see, God had given great promises to David. You should read them. 2 Samuel 7 is where they are. 2 Samuel 7 is the basis for Psalm 2. God gave great promises to David. 
He also, in 2 Samuel 8 through 10, records for us in his word wars which, well, were opposing David directly. And shortly after his coronation as king, shortly after these great big promises that God gave to David as king and to these kingly descendants who would come. So these wars are happening in 2 Samuel 8 through 10, and I think that's in part what leads to David writing Psalm 2. So on one level, Psalm 2 is God saying, David's my man. Listen up, neighbors. You mess with him, you mess with me. Kiss that king, or I'm coming. You'll get it. That's the near of the bifocals of Psalm 2. The the far is in the New Testament where we see so many passages in the New Testament which look back to the Psalms and say, like Jesus does, he'll say something like this. Remember when David said this? Or when it said this in the Psalms about David? And then he'll say, that referred to me. Or remember the blind man who calls out to Jesus for healing and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Why? Well, it matters because the promises were to a son of David, to David and his offspring. That's why two of our New Testament books begin with a what? A genealogy. You got to show that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, came from the line, the line of Abraham, the line also of David. You see, the Old Testament keeps talking about one to come. It's the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 who eventually is going to be born. So it's got to be a human being. He's got to be born. And then he will be the defeat of the serpent and sin. He will overturn the curse. In Deuteronomy 34, the one to come is a prophet like Moses, but better than Moses. In Deuteronomy 17, it's a king coming for Judah. Long before the people of Israel were saying, give us a king like the nations. God had already promised there'll be a king. A king is coming. He's an anointed one, 1 Samuel 2. A Messiah. The Emmanuel child in Isaiah 9. We read passages like that oftentimes at Christmas. Where a virgin will give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. God with us. How would you like to be called God with us. If you're not God, that's a dangerous name to have, isn't it? Slightly blasphemous name to have, isn't it? Now, if your name is Emmanuel, I'm sure your mom didn't mean to give you a blasphemous name. But we're just pretending here, right? We're just pretending that someone who's called Emmanuel better be Emmanuel. He better be God with us. Isaiah 11 says the one to come is David's son. But Psalm 110 says it's David's Lord. Do you get that? David's son is also David's Lord. How does that work? It doesn't work unless we're talking about one guy. One guy who was eternal and born. One who was son and yet has been forever, who is the Lord of the greatest king in Bible history. 
And notice how Psalm 2 itself is quite bigger than any human king could ever fulfill. So no doubt, even as David writes this, God is inspiring him to write more than fits inside of David or in his near offspring. Notice how the king is reigning universally. Verse 10, it's calling rulers of the earth to heed this king. Notice how this king's reign is so completely unthwartable in Psalm 2. Notice how this king is not just a ruler, but he's also a refuge. He's the Messiah. Now, I need you to turn to Acts chapter 4 to see something else here. Would you do that? Acts 4 in your Bibles. It's an important passage for Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 is quoted here. And it tells us this. It tells us not only that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, but Acts 4 tells us that his victory, his exaltation, actually comes through his suffering and death. And yes, eventual resurrection. So in Acts chapter 4, the disciples have been preaching the gospel in the land, and they're in trouble for it. The rulers and the religious leaders have gathered together, and they've beat them for this. And they've also threatened them. You keep talking about them, and there'll be imprisonment, maybe even death. So they're finally set free in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends, other Christians, reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, what a great prayer this is. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, here's Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's Psalm 2 language again. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. You see how it tells us God reigns. God uses the evil of evil men to overturn, his, uh, to overturn their purposes and use it for his. The cross is the perfect case in point for the futility, the plotting in vain of the nations. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, all their plotting to put away this one who called himself Messiah. All they're plotting to put away this one who preached with authority. And it's exactly God's appointed means for our salvation and for his victory. So back to Psalm 2. That's really what's meant in verse 8 when it says that God will give him the nations as his inheritance. But this is a gift that he also pays for. So Romans 5, I'm sorry, Revelation 5, says that Jesus died. He was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed for God people from every tongue and tribe, kindred and nation. 
He gives the nations to his son. And the son purchases their redemption that they might be reconciled to him and restored to the fellowship that they, as a people, once had in the first family of Adam and Eve. So his plan is more centralized than you might think. It all centers on Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, that's why the cross is so central for us. It all is indeed about Jesus. Lastly, we need to note this. The king is more fierce and more merciful than we can imagine. The psalm ends with an appeal. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. And not just kings, not just rulers. If kings, then everybody. If kings should do what is about to be said here, then everyone should. If, if kings should bow, everyone should bow. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the psalm ends with an appeal here, but the basis for that appeal is twofold, that the king is more fierce and more merciful than we can imagine. Let's take each of those separately. He's more merciful than we can imagine. So we're to serve him with fear, it says in verse 11. You might think, that doesn't sound very merciful. Serve with fear? That's because we can't imagine a, a kind of fear that is awe-filling, wondrous, and glorious, all at the same time. Serving? Yes. What else would we do? You think he's the, the kind of loving God that says to the birdie, I'm going to let you go, and if you fly back, then I'll know that you love me. No. He sets his love upon us and he forgives us and reconciles us. But serving him is right. He's the king. What else would we do? It's loving for the king to say, serve me. Because he is the king. He is glorious. Rejoice with trembling, verse 11 says. That sounds weird to our ears, doesn't it? Rejoice and tremble. I think we can imagine trembling without joy. I think we can imagine joy without trembling. But that just shows us that God is unique. That with him there is joy and holy trembling. We see it a little bit when you stand at the edge of, a, edge of the Grand Canyon, right? You look down and there's joy, there's excitement. You're not sad to be there. You're not mad to be there. And yet you're a little frightened about the grandness of the Grand Canyon. He's merciful. And verse 12 says we should respond to him by kissing the sun. That's intimate. You say, kiss the sun. I'm sure that is sort of like a kingly picture here. It's, he's got the ring out and he says, kiss the ring. Come kiss the sun. Yeah, but it's still intimate. It shows authority. He is the king. Yes, that is probably what it's hinting at. Kiss his ring. He doesn't really have a ring. But it's, that's the picture. But that wasn't for everybody. 
vagrants, vagabonds, thieves, and robbers didn't come in to kiss the king's ring. Those who were his close companions did. Blessed or happy is the one who takes refuge in him, verse 12. We can take refuge in him. He's so merciful, and yet he is more fierce than we can imagine. Verse 11 says, be wise. Listen up. Take heed. Be warned. Because because of sin, he's angry, verse 12. And some will perish. Those who do not kiss the sun will perish. And his wrath is kindled quickly. In case you think that this is an Old Testament God, and somehow now there in the New Testament is this nicer, softer, gentler kind of God, let me remind you a final word about the king in the New Testament. Revelation 19, John saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one who was sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He's conquered kings. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's mysterious. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Dipped in blood? Yeah, did you see Braveheart? The last battle scene? Looks like their clothes is dipped in blood, right? Not their blood. The blood of the enemy. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And here it is. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. With it, he strikes down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2 language. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is no soft, cuddly Jesus. Paul tells us to behold the goodness and severity of God. Behold his mercy. Behold his mercy in light of his severity. We won't know grace and we won't love his His forgiveness, like we should, if we don't understand his wrath and his hatred of sin. If we don't understand what we're saved from, how will you respond to the king? If you're not a Christian, will you continue in rejection, unbelief? Will you continue in rebellion and resistance and restlessness? It will lead to recompense, to retribution at the end when he returns. Or will you respond to the king today by finally relenting, by finally repenting, hating sin, owning your sin, and turning from it? Will you respond to the king today by receiving his work on your behalf, receiving his great gift which you never could earn? Will you then walk with him in a relationship where he is your refuge and you are rejoicing even while you reverence him? 
I pray, if you're not a Christian, that you'll move from senseless rage to sure refuge this morning. And if you think, okay, this is about non-Christians, then I got this. I, I kissed the sun. What's it mean for me as a Christian? Well, you rejoice. You keep rejoicing. You kiss and you keep on kissing. We remember that the king is not threatened by rebellion or brokenness. We remember that the conspiring of the nations and sinful people, whether against us or against righteousness in general or God directly, it's futile. He'll win. We trust him. And we keep going to the word to remind ourselves of the unseen truth. The world is speaking to us all the time and we need the word to be that compass so we can flee sin, so we can embrace his loving rule and his good restraint. We can embrace his word in all of it, all parts of it. Are you embarrassed this morning that I read Revelation 19? Are you thinking maybe I shouldn't have invited that friend to come along this morning? You didn't know it was going to get bloody? Kiss the son. Kiss his word. All of it. And go and proclaim. Go and proclaim to those who, like you, once did, they still walk in darkness and warn them. And go with the confidence that Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew 28 based on all authority in heaven and on earth. The king sends us out as his heralds to warn, to bring in. And we represent him. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's good to us even while people are bad to us. So we take refuge in him.